Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 27. The theme of this chapter is God's overthrow of Babylon would provide for him to replant his vineyard back in Judah for their full restoration and fruitfulness to fill the face of the whole earth. That vineyard was plucked up in Isaiah chapter 5. The Lord did everything possible for a vineyard. And he said when he came looking for grapes, he found wild grapes. And the question that should have haunted us then, and I know it did some of you, I remember that Sunday, and some of you telling me, and some of you telling me later in the week, his question was, what more could have been done for my vineyard that I have not done? He's done more than enough to get everything from us. If the Bible is half true, I owe him 100% of me. So he ripped that vineyard up. And Isaiah 5 is terrible destruction as he tore that vineyard to shreds. But he's going to bring it back in Isaiah 27 and replant it. That's the theme. You know the context because it's chapters 24, 5, 6, and 7. Those four chapters are about Nebuchadnezzar destroying Jerusalem, taking them captive, the ruin of God's vineyard, taking them to Babylon where they were for 70 years, and then released by Cyrus the Persian, and they come back to Jerusalem and Judah. The first section is the first verse. God would slay Leviathan with his sword. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Amen and amen. Our children today, and thankfully not very many of our children, are being seduced with a great deal of science fiction junk of made-up Hercules and swords and fighting dragons and stuff that's all made up. But we have the real stuff right here in the Bible, the real events in the Bible. Leviathan here is Babylon. It's mighty Babylon. It's the dragon. It's the serpent. Leviathan, whatever you want to make it, except don't make it what commentaries make it. It's not a crocodile. It's far greater than a crocodile. If you want to see some ideas on what Leviathan might be, look up our slides from just four months ago or so of Job being boasted to by God about his creature Leviathan, and we had some ideas. It could very well be a creature that is extinct. So don't try to limit it to the animals you've seen in Cleveland Park. Okay? Because whatever this Leviathan is, where the Bible deals with it, It is one huge sea monster, and it's terrifying, and men can't touch it. And that was like Babylon. Babylon was considered untouchable, impregnable, never to be overthrown, but God slew it. And so here we have words that our nation is corrupting with fables and fiction junk, but this is true. This is nonfiction. It's a similitude. And Babylon is, a, is well represented by Leviathan. And Cyrus the Persian is well represented by God's sore and great and strong sword. 
And if we had the time, I could chase some of these words for you in the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and show you how that's what Cyrus was. If you read Jeremiah 51 last night, you received that instruction about how God would raise up the Medes and the Persians to take out Babylon. In that day, that's the seventh time in four chapters that God refers to this epoch or era of Israel when they would be taken captive but then released. And the great enemy, the great enemy was Babylon. And God took Babylon down with his sword and God used means by taking Babylon down with Cyrus the Persian. The Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, and Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Persian did exactly that. The piercing serpent. And you can go read in Job about his piercing ability and strength, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. This great sea monster called Leviathan in the Bible. Someone says, why does it say sea? Well, I'll give you two reasons. One, Leviathan lives in the sea. Two, two. Babylon was considered to exist in the middle of the waters. And if you had read Jeremiah 51, I will not, I promise you something. And I've, I've already kept this promise for decades. I will never ask you to read a chapter that will not be your prophet. I never put a chapter in a preparatory because I couldn't think of anything else to put there. If I don't think of anything, you won't get one. Like Friday Update a week ago. I couldn't think of anything. So you didn't get one. But when I put Jeremiah 51, there was profit. And, one, and part of that profit is that Babylon was considered to exist in the middle of the waters because it existed in the middle of Euphrates and the, and the moat that was around the city and in all the rivers and other ponds of water that were made by the Euphrates and everything from Babylon down to the Persian Gulf is just a wet swampy morass anyway. And so the Bible says that. Sword. Does the Bible really? Yes. Did Isaiah chapter 10 say that Sennacherib is a rod in my hand? Did he call him an axe? Was Nebuchadnezzar called my battle axe? Yes. You know all these terms. And that is what verse 1 is. It's a similitude. We determine by context that we're not having a zoology lesson. We determine by context that we've got Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, captivity, Jews being released. How did they get released? And going back home, and it's Cyrus the Persian as the sword of God, as Nebuchadnezzar had been his battle axe, Cyrus the Persian delivering them by slaying the Leviathan, the monster that no man can slay, the Babylonian Empire and its chief and great city of Babylon. Let's go to the next section. You, you may look at the outline if you want more verses on swords, Leviathan, dragons, water, serpents, and so forth. The celebration is in that first verse that there's victory. That, that our Lord, in the day the Lord, with his sore and great and strong sword, would do something. Do you know that you have a great Lord with great swords that he can draw of all kinds to deliver you. Right. And when he draws his sword, do you want some of those verses? They're wonderful. Like Deuteronomy chapter 32. When he draws his sword, 
and wets it for blood, you do not want to be around. Right. It's Deuteronomy 32 around verse 40. Tremendous verses in the Bible about God's sword. It's just our, our God wanting to present himself that way in this one verse about destroying the crooked serpent, the sea monster called Leviathan. So we go to the next section, verses 2 and 3. It's short. In that day, notice, verse 1, in that day, verse 2, in that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. So we're back to a song again. Sing again. Sing again. Sing unto her to Israel, to Jacob, to Judah, a vineyard of red wine. There is no white wine in the Bible, and there's no blush in the Bible. For those of you that like Riesling or white Zinfandel, I'm sorry. I mean, it's okay. But it's just not in the Bible. Because in the Bible, it's red, and it's the color of blood uh, at all times when it's described. In that day, singing unto her a vineyard of red wine, I, the Lord, do keep it. These are some of the most precious words in the whole Bible. This verse. This is us. We are the vineyard of the Lord of harvest. We are the vineyard of the Lord of the whole earth. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. That is a tremendous verse. I hope I just sold some of you on a new favorite verse from at least Isaiah 27, if not from the book of Isaiah. That is a wonderful verse. Do you know what I want to share with you? I want you to look at verse 2. It seems so empty. It seems like the Lord forgot to fill out the verse because all it says is a vineyard of red wine. But you are to understand in this song that is being sung, everything in verse 3 and what's following is jammed into it, but it's just left that way for you to think about it. A vineyard of red wine. That's all it says. But as we read, that vineyard is so well taken care of that that little expression, the opening of the song, is fabulously filled with meaning to us. Because it's not God ripping her up. It's God delighting in her and us delighting in her and us singing to her. In that day, sing ye unto her. How do you do that? When you're the church, how do you sing to the church? You sing to each other because each other of us put together is the vineyard of red wine. We're singing to each other. We're the vineyard of red wine. And do you know what the Lord has said He's going to do for us? I myself will keep it. That is wonderful. You don't need Hezekiah. You don't need Josiah. You don't need Zerubbabel. You don't need I myself. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment. How many vineyards are watered every moment? Are we watered every moment? You You know there's New Testament applications for these things, don't you? Are we watered every moment? Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. We'll have so much water supplied to us by the Holy Spirit, by the gift of Jesus Christ that he obtained after his resurrection and gave it to the church that out of our bellies would flow rivers of living water. 
But that's not the point here. The point is that vineyard was reestablished and God was going to take care of it in the most personal and intimate way. And I want all of you to embrace the God of the Bible that can treat you like this and treat us as a church like this. And lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. That is a wonderful verse. Has he done that for our church? Amen. Has the Lord himself kept us? Amen. Has he watered us every moment? Has anyone been able to hurt us? No, because he's kept us night and day. Next section, four through six. We get three this time, three verses. Fury is not in me. <laughs> Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That is a vineyard. That is an exciting vineyard. Verse 4, fury is not in me. Had he shown fury toward them for 70 years? Yes and yes. But fury was no longer in him toward them. Fury is not in me. I hope when you read the Bible, you understand that there are four marks of punctuation in our language. I'm not talking about exclamation points and those extraneous ones. A comma, a semicolon, a colon, and a period. And they get one pause, two pauses, three pauses, four pauses. That's how you ought to read the Bible, and that's how you ought to understand the Bible. And when we have a colon like this, there is a serious break in thought worth three counts. Just throwing that out for your reading in private and in public when you read audibly. Fury is not in me because I am just going to take care of you now. I'm going to pamper you. I'm going to water you every moment. I'm going to protect you night and day. I, the Lord, will do it. I'm going to do it myself. Fury is not in me. It's over. <laughs> Except if anybody wants to mess up my vineyard by bringing thorns and briars into it. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? Who is going to hinder my establishment of my vineyard back in Judah? Who wants to take the risk of trying to mess with my vineyard? And if you've read the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, was there a man named Haman that wanted to mess with the vineyard? What, are you with me? Look, look, fury is not in me. Oh, fury's always there for the right person. Fury is not in me. Not toward us. Not toward his church. But who wants to be stupid enough? I'm, try, I'm trying to help you understand this verse. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? Though I make this statement and show my tenderness toward the Jews, who wants to take me on? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Briars and thorns together. This is, or there's one other option for you kings. I gave you Psalm 2 last night. I, I gave you Psalm 2. There's another option for kings. Humble yourself and lay hold of my strength and submit yourself to me that I am greater than you and that you ought to obey me. And Cyrus did that. 
Cyrus did that, and Cyrus had an illustrious reign. And Psalm 2, the last three verses... Do you want to hear what it says? It says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Fury is not in me, unless you want to rebel. Lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So this section right here, Fury is not in me towards you Jews anymore. I'm going to take care of you and pamper you like described in verses 2 and 3. But if anyone wants to try to mess with you and put briars and thorns in the vineyard, I'll go through them and burn them together. He has another option. He can humble himself and make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Were there kings that made peace with, with God? Did Ahasuerus make peace with God after determining with Haman's manipulation that all the Jews would be killed? Did Esther and Ahasuerus make peace with the Lord? Did they change that law? And did they kill all the enemies of the Jews? Have you read the book of Esther carefully? Do you know what it says? Many of them became Jews. It says many of them became Jews. Fury is not in me toward his people, but fury is still there if you want to mess with my people. Then I'll go right through you and burn you. If you want to humble yourself before me, Cyrus, you can be great. And he's not the only one. Right. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther describe Darius, Artaxerxes, and kings that served the kingdom and humbled themselves. And do you know what it says about them? Do you know what they said among themselves? Do you know what they told the Jews? Thank you for praying for me and my sons. How's that for peace? Instead of trying to hinder the work, they supported the work by laying hold of God's strength and humbling themselves to that strength. He, God, through Cyrus, through Darius, through Ahasuerus, through Artaxerxes, he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. They'll be supported, nourished, fed, fertilized in the land of Judah. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. There were two kind of kings. And when you read those three books, those history books that I mentioned, there were those that tried to hinder the work, and they would send back an envoy to Shushan, or to send back an envoy to the Persians and ask, can you find in the records that there was a king that gave this rebellious nation the permission to come back here and build? You should remember those things because they would find the record because God would help them, and so the building would go on again. The Lord was with them. And so they were planted. Oh, help me go faster. Those, that's verses 4 through 6. The next section, verses 7 through 9. Totally different thought. God's chastening to bear fruit, to bear good fruit. Hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? This is, this is just a, a, little, a little puzzle for you. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? Well, we've got some pronouns to work through. In measure, when it shooteth forth, thou wilt debate with it. He stayeth his rough wind in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. 
and this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and images shall not stand up. Quickly, verse 7. Has God smitten Judah as God smote those that smote Judah? Has God smitten Judah as God smote the Babylonians that smote Judah? Has God dealt totally differently with the Jews compared to the Babylonians? That's the point. Yes. His dealings and smiting of the Babylonians was to destroy them. His smiting of the Jews was to chasten them for fruit to come out of them. That's totally different. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that if ye be without chastisement, which is true of the Babylonians, then you're bastards and not sons. But if you have chastising and you're being smitten in a gentle way that doesn't end you, but just helps you, then you're being treated as sons. That's what that verse is teaching. And it did it with pronouns just to make you think about your reading. If you read that verse too fast, you won't know what it's talking about. <laughs> It's a beautiful verse, though. Once you see it, then you want to play with it. And you go to the next part of it. What is the next part? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? Is Judah slain according to the slaughter of Babylon that are slain by God? You say, wow. Those pronouns have different antecedents, don't they? Yep. The Lord put it there for your exercise. Verse 8, in measure. When it shooteth forth, he's back on the vineyard. The Lord measures his vineyard. When it shooteth forth and grows a little too fast, thou wilt debate with it. Oh, how gentle. How gentle. I taught you when we were way back in Isaiah 5, I believe, that I had read a little bit about vineyards. And vineyards, to maximize quality and quantity, have a very careful protocol of pruning. There's a lot of pruning to be done to get maximum quality and quantity out of a vineyard. And when a, when a vine shoots forth too much, it'll be too much draw, and so they cut it off to shorten it to make sure that every grape that hangs on it is the best in quality and quantity combined. They, they, it's a science now, but it's a science of pruning. In measure, God's measuring his vineyard. When it shooteth forth, we get a little out of line. Thou wilt debate with it. He will deal gently with it and talk us back in. He'll prune us, but he'll prune us gently for quality and productivity. And he stayeth his rough wind in the day of the east wind. I don't have time for the verses, but the east wind in Israel was violent, violent and counterproductive to a vineyard. But notice what the Lord says, when the east wind comes, he would stay the rough wind. I will not let it be too hard for you. This is him speaking to his church, and this is how he speaks to all of us. Isn't this true? Have you ever been dealt with according to your sins? Or have you been dealt with gently? Has he just barely pruned you a little? Has he just debated it with you and talked about it with you inside so that you knew you were wrong and you were willing to repent? Yes. Amen. 
It's a similitude. It's a vineyard. How does he tell, how does he tell you about chastening grapes? With, unless he does it like this, right here. This is chastening grapes, like he chastens us. Verse 9. By this, therefore, this kind of God, God's kind treatment of us, pruning us. Isn't that what it says in, a, in John chapter 15? That if you don't bear fruit, he's going to prune us, he's going to cut us off, he's going to get fruit out of us one way or another. And so it is here. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. By God's chastening upon Jacob, and, and his chastening was always limited, he did not smite them like he smote the Babylonians. He only debated with them, he only helped them. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. This is the effect to take away his sin. This is the effect of God's treatment toward Judah to take away his sin, where the word fruit is used for effect. When he make, and this is what Judah is going to do because of this. What was the one problem that Judah had the most of? What did the Jews want to do the most that God hated the most? Idolatry. Right. It was idolatry, and that's what's mentioned. Altars to other gods and groves. When the Jews came back, they beat the stones of their altars like limestones where they're looking for chalk to make cement that are beaten in sunder. They took the stones, and they weren't limestones that made their altars, but they beat them like they were limestones, and the groves and images shall not stand up. They would not replace those groves and images that had been broken down because they were cured from idolatry. And do you know what one sin we never run into in the New Testament? Idolatry. There isn't idolatry between the recovery from Babylon and Jesus Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. They missed their Messiah, and they brutalized their Messiah, but they weren't guilty of idolatry because they'd been cured. They were always guilty of idolatry until they went on a vacation for 70 years. And I hope that it... Could we learn the lesson sooner than 70 years? Lord, help us. Heavenly Father, please try seven minutes but not 70 years. Next section. Verses 10 and 11. Yet the defense city shall be desolate and the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There shall the calf feed and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. When the bows thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. Like Isaiah, in, in the chapters, the chapters bounce around. The chapters will deal with, with uh, Babylon. Then the next chapter will deal with Sennacherib, which was 100 years in front of Babylon. The chapters do that all the time, and so do the content of the chapters. See, this is jumping back to point out that the chastening is going to start with Jerusalem being overthrown by Nebuchadnezzar. And they're going to be taken captive because they are a people without understanding. This God that formed them as his nation, this God that formed them as his church, and they wouldn't obey, and they, they refused to have understanding, he's going to chasten them. And that's what verses 10 and 11 are describing. The defense city of Jerusalem shall be made desolate by the Babylonians, and the habitation forsaken, because everyone's going to leave the city, either by death, by fleeing to Egypt, or by captivity, and left like a wilderness, that's Jerusalem, 
There shall the calf feed, and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. Judah was eaten up, like we read about in Isaiah chapters 7 and 8. When the boughs thereof are withered, speaking of a vineyard, they shall be broken off. They're going to be withered because they're not going to be taken care of. They're not going to be watered. They're not going to be protected. Women come and set them on fire. All the withered boughs of a vineyard. For it is a people of no understanding. That is the stiff-necked, hard-heartedness of the Jewish people toward their God. It is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. He would show them no favor and no mercy for 70 years while he chastened this stuff out of them, which he did. But it's his people that he formed. Listen, if this is just about the Babylonians, it doesn't make any sense. How did he make them? You say, well, God made everything. Well, who would bring that up here? That's, that's too infantile for Isaiah or the Lord. Who, he made Israel. He formed them as his own nation. And they're the ones that have to be chastened. They're the ones of no understanding. The whole earth is of no understanding. The whole earth. So why, if, you, if you're tempted to make this Babylon, why not the whole earth? Since none of them are with under, without, they're without understanding. But the Lord's let them be without understanding. He has other ways of dealing with them. He rewires their heads. But this kind of chastening, where he takes them out of their city and leaves their city forsaken, is what he did to the Jews of Judah. Last section, verses 12 and 13. See, the vineyard in the first half of the chapter is freed and planted. But then the chastening is described in verses 7 through 9 as to its purpose and its effect. Verses 10 and 11 are the chastening. That he couldn't show them mercy or favor for 70 years. But then at the end, we get to finish before we go into a totally new chapter in 28. Look at the first, the first clause. Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. That's a different object. It's a different prophecy. We get to conclude with something wonderful. Verses 12 and 13. After their chastening, after their city is left desolate, and they are sent back to it by Cyrus the Persian, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. See, they are the ones that are scattered and taken out as the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that it is left forsaken. They are the ones. If you just read all these verses together and make, let the connection sit and stand, you'll see that verses 10 and 11, because I think some of you may be struggling with seeing 10 and 11 as the defense city being Jerusalem, it's the chastening. It's the chastening that cured them from idolatry. And then verse 12 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one. You Jews that didn't have any understanding, I taught you understanding by not smiting you the way I smote the Babylonians. I just chastened you to teach you wisdom. Now the, the channel of the river. What river? Euphrates. When a river doesn't have a name in the Bible, it's the river Euphrates. Throughout the Bible, the river. The channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt. Now, Egypt doesn't really have a stream. Egypt has the mighty river Nile, but it's called a stream here. I, the Lord can use any words he wants to. Those are the boundaries of Israel. Those are the boundaries that God gave Joshua and David from the Nile 
to the Euphrates, and David and Solomon had the kingdom that large. Now within those boundaries, within those boundaries were scattered Jews that had run and hid wherever they could among the peoples of the land. And this verse is addressing them. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the chant. That is a threshing, a threshing term to get grain off a stalk. He is going to find the grain that is grow of all that's growing up between these two boundaries of the Euphrates and the Nile. He's going to find the stalks that have real grain, beat off the grain to put it into his garner. He'll beat off from the channel unto the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one. The Lord is not going to miss anyone. He's going to go find them one at a time. Do you know how comforting these verses are? The Lord's going to come after you one at a time. Them and us. Them and us. It's a lesson for us. This is how he dealt with his church in the Old Testament. He deals with his New Testament church the same way. His relationship with us is individual, one at a time. You can have a relationship with God irrespective of everyone else. He comes after his church and gathers them one by one. Sometimes you may think my, my sights are too low when I say, for one soul. One soul is, an, is a wonderful, fantastic thing. And I'm thankful that he came after my one soul. And so these, these are the ones in the boundaries. Because notice what it says. From the channel of the Euphrates to the stream of the Nile, I'm going to find my grain one by one, and you'll be gathered back. Now, next verse. Starts out the very same way. It shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. See, this is a little farther. These are people farther away. Great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, beyond the Euphrates River, and, in the, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, beyond the Nile, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. He is going to get the ones inside the boundaries. He's going to get the ones outside the boundaries. And guess what did happen? This happened. They came back. They straggled back. There was a small group to begin with, but it increased and increased until when we read in the New Testament there were 12 tribes represented in Jerusalem. And so this is Isaiah 27. This is how God dealt with his church then. This is how God deals with us now. He has come after us one by He has put us in this church one by one. Did any two people ever join this church simultaneously? In the true definition of simultaneously? Or did you come in one by one? He got us one by one here in all kinds of different ways. And what a vineyard. Don't forget verse 3. Don't forget verse 4. Fury is not in me. I just want to water you every day. No, I want to water you every moment. So that nothing bad happens to you, I'm going to protect you night and day. I, the Lord, will do it. He didn't need Zerubbabel. He did it himself. And doesn't he take care of you himself? Amen. You know, in, this, in the relationship aspect that I'm appealing to right now, you don't need me. You need him. And I hope that the desire of your soul is toward him and toward his name and toward remembrance of him. These are the two chapters of Isaiah.
I say they're worth singing because they say they're worth singing. Right. And we ought to have some laughter in our mouths. So we're going to sing two more songs. We're going to sing one that I picked, and we're going to sing one that you have picked. Because several of you have come to me and said that I missed it. I missed the boat. So let's start out with Like a River Glorious. Like a River Glorious is going to use the words from Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, and then we'll sing the one that Eric has noted up here. Let's sing these two songs and go home. And let's go home with joy in our hearts for a God that wants to water us every moment. He wants to protect us himself. There's no fury in him unless somebody picks on you. Then there's fury in him, and he'll go through them and burn them together. It's, just, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. This is Isaiah. For those of you that love the book of Isaiah, I hope I'm not disappointing you in the things that we're learning there. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.